Thank you for joining ReachMD XM157 for this month's special series, Spotlight on Neurology and Psychiatry. Today we have many options to treat depression. The SSRIs, Cymbalta, Effexor, MSAM, Wellbutrin, to name just a few. How do you know when to move beyond the SSRIs? When is it time to refer to a psychiatrist? What if there are no psychiatrists available to your patients? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, Director of Foothills Psychiatry in Boise, your host, and with me today is Dr. Stephen Ellen. Dr. Ellen is Assistant Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. He is also Medical Director and Senior Staff Psychiatrist of the Counseling Center in Nashua, New Hampshire, the largest private group practice in New England. Dr. Ellen is widely recognized as one of the premier physician educators in the country. Welcome to ReachMD, Steve. Thank you, Leslie. Uh, Dr. Allen, what's the current state of the art when treating depression? Well, I think if you talk to folks outside of psychiatry, as it's been for 20 years, I believe they'll say it's to use SSRIs and to mobilize serotonin. If you speak to psychiatrists, particularly those that treat folks who are uh, already been in treatment uh, with a couple other clinicians or academic psychiatrists, I think they'll tell you that the starting point might be to use dual mechanism antidepressants, drugs, mobilizing both serotonin and norepinephrine. When it comes to efficacy, probably doesn't matter which dual mechanism you use. Most of the tricyclics are dual mechanism. One could easily uh, argue that the MAOIs are, are dual or triple mechanism, hitting serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine, though those are typically not used first line. A Remeron is dual mechanism. The modern ones are Effexor XR, Cymbalta. They all have comparable efficacy. The ones that have the best tolerability are, are the cleaner, more modern duals, the Effexor XR and the Cymbalta. And they seem to have a slightly greater remission rate when you look at the published pooled or meta-analysis studies that take all the individual head-to-head dual mechanism versus single mechanism studies and put them together to get some statistical heft behind the data. I think that if you talk to old-timers, and if you remember the sort of beginning of our training, Leslie, there was a different impression of treating depression back before 1987. If you talk to doctors that were treating it in, in the 70s or 60s or even in the early 80s, there was a common experience of giving a patient the options that were there, tricyclic, MAY. And frequently, the patient would get better very quickly, and frequently, the patient would stay well for a really extended period of time. Mm-hmm. I mean, we still have patients today, I know you do, I know I do, uh, who are still on Ellaville 30 years later mm-hmm. and doing well. If you look at the average patient who was treated for depression in 2008, there's a different experience commonly. You know, one of the ways, I want to sort of have a little flashback here, which is to, to tell you that one of the ways to elicit a, a surefire laugh amongst large groups of psychiatrists who are listening to a lecture is to just say very simply, remember the days when Prozac actually worked in everybody. <laughs> that is good. Because it, it really did. There was this impression whether we were sort of plucking low-lying fruit, folks with mild depressions, folks with anxiety disorders. I, you know, it's hard to know exactly what that was about, but it was, it was really miraculous and it was a great tool. But today, 20 years later, it's a different experience. The reality of treating depression is a different experience. The most typical patient we see or primary care doctor sees gets put on a, maybe a generic SSRI because the formulary requests that or the patient requests it or that's what the doctor is familiar with. And then six months or a year later, they're on a higher dose. And, and within six months or a year, they're on an augmentation strategy. Something's been added. They're on a different SSRI. And then the year after that, they're in the psychiatrist's office or, or they're on their third or fourth medication. 
we're seeing this this common experience of residual symptoms, this common experience of high rates of relapse. It's it's a different world, and I, I can't tell you that I know exactly what that's about and why. Prozac today, you know, doesn't work the way it seemed to in 87. A lot of this is impression. The data tells us that you have a higher rate of remission with the dual mechanism drugs and you have a lower relapse rate. The thing that's really striking is not so much the remission rate. It's only about 10 points higher on average, maybe 45% versus 35%. And that's not a big number. You'd have to see a lot of patients to even notice that in your practice. If you treated 10 patients with, uh, say, FX or XR or Cymbalta, and you treated 10 patients with, say, Lexapro or Celexa, you know, maybe in the effects or Cymbalta wing, uh, four patients would achieve remission, and in the uh, SSRI wing, three patients would achieve remission. And that's, that's not a big difference. Only one patient out of the 20 you've treated, people miss that. But what I think they don't miss is that the relapse rate is much higher amongst those that haven't been successfully brought to remission. They end up really having a dramatically higher relapse rate. Seven studies, all consistent in that the relapse rate is two or 300% higher amongst those that get better compared to those that get well. And I think that's what underlies the common experience. They, they all seem to work about the same on the initial treatment, but then something doesn't quite hold as well. Uh, even the FDA has given language of approval uh, based on long-term studies for uh, something on the order of the ability to maintain antidepressant response uh, with effects or XR and with Cymbalta. They, they both now have that language. You know, 20, 30 years ago, I don't think anyone would even try to get that language because there was an instinctive experience of the tricyclics MAOIs holding people. And what I think is really interesting is that if you look at the major diseases that primary care doctors treat, and every single primary care internist family practitioner will tell you that this is their everyday reality, treating, let's pick, you know, four or five diseases they treat prominently in the office every single day, things like hypertension, things like diabetes, uh, COPD, congestive heart failure, asthma. If you look at the model of care for those five diseases, you know, what is the standard of care? It's always to combine modalities. I don't know enough about the primary care specialty, but hypertension is treated with a diuretic plus an ARB or an ARB plus an ACE. Diabetes is treated where you target the disease at multiple points along its pathophysiology. They've got lots of pills in primary care where there are two different medications in the same capsule because every primary care doctor will tell you that if you're really trying to achieve a certain standard of treatment with hypertension, you're just not going to get away with a diuretic. It's really not going to hold them. You'll get a greater degree of improvement combining the modalities, and that improvement will be sustained for a much longer period of time. And in psychiatry, you know, to sort of finish this analogy, I think the only way that we can really treat the disease more fully is to mobilize both serotonin and norepinephrine. The patients who are treated with SSRIs, unfortunately, have very high rates of residual uh, insomnia, energy difficulties, concentration, motivation, flatness, apathy, things that we believe that norepinephrine may be a little bit better at managing. And it may be what's underlying the fact that when you bring norepinephrine into the mix and use an SNRI, uh, you do get that bump in the remission rate, and you certainly get that dramatic decrease in the relapse rate. Some primary care doctors say to me, you know, I, I like to sort of hold on to the effects or XR or the Cymbalta wing. I, I like to have a backup. Right. You know, I, Save I wanna, it in the back room. <laughs> yeah, I want to I have something to do. You know, if I, if I were to start with that medication and it didn't work out, then what I do? I think that's problematic 
thinking. I think that it's best to use an agent, especially if the tolerability is comparable. Some people think that tolerability isn't comparable. If you go right to the PDR, right to the package insert, and you look at the portion that really tells you in the studies that were double-blinded, you know, the, the treatment trials that got these drugs approved, as clean as you get in the world of, you know, studies, what is the dropout rate for any reason? That number gives you a nice little snapshot of tolerability, dropout rate for any reason. Alexapro, cleanest drug in the U.S. market, 6% of folks drop out for any reason. But surprisingly, uh, second and third most tolerated drug in the U.S. market might surprise primary care docs, Cymbalta, 10% for any reason. Uh, Fexorexar, 11% for any reason. Selexa, by the way, 16%. Paxil, 19%. So they end up being really remarkably tolerable. And some docs will even say to me, you know, I'd rather take that 6% of Lexapro than the 10% of Cymbalta. I point out that's a four-point difference. Roughly means that about one patient out of every 25 will actually tolerate Lexapro better than Cymbalta. Very tiny number, hard to track. What happens if uh, medication doesn't work, the dual mechanism doesn't? Or let's say a doctor prefers to start with a SSRI because of comfort and experience or you know, formulary issues. And then if that patient uh, doesn't do well, why not sort of create a dual mechanism of treatment by adding Welbutrin? Which is commonly done. Very commonly. Maybe, in fact, there was a, a study out of Mass General which showed that it was probably the single most common initial augmentation strategy. And I think that's great. I mean, there's not great studies, but there are some open label, you know, not large, and they do show some benefit. Uh, De Batista did one of those, obviously, out of California. And it turns out that I have an argument against that, you know, because I tend to be a little bit provocative. I, I like to say I learned in eighth grade math that if A is greater than B, then A plus C will always be greater than B plus C. I don't know if that's algebra or geometry. I forgot what type of math that is. So if the dual mechanism agents, A, have a higher remission rate than the SSRIs, B, and C is Wellbutrin, I'm not sure why you would need to use an SSRI and then augment with Wellbutrin when, in fact, you can use a, a dual mechanism drug and there's no pharmacokinetic or pharmacodynamic interaction that prevents you from adding Welbutrin to Effects or XR or Welbutrin to Cymbalta. I think you're a little further down the line starting with the dual, less likely to need to augment. But if you do need to augment with that most common strategy, you know, go for it. You can add Welbutrin. I think one of the less recognized but powerful augmentation strategies once you start getting into the two-medication realm is to use a dual-mechanism drug and then to add Remeron. Uh, Stephen Stahl out of San Diego refers to that as his California rocket fuel. Right? Steve, this this sounds pretty complicated. Most of our audience is primary care or non-psychiatrists anyway. When should they say, okay, I, I've reached my limit, time to take it to the psychiatrist? H- how do they know when to stop? I think it's based on that clinician's own comfort level. Every clinician knows where that point is. Uh, to be a little more concrete, if you've already used one or two, especially if you're on your third medication trial, I think it's real good to get a consultation with a psychiatrist. If you get any hint that there's something evolving that is not in your comfort zone, perhaps there's some bipolar disorder in the mix or something even more significant than that psychiatrically. And again, it's not in your comfort zone uh, to seek a psychiatrist. Uh, Again, I, I think every clinician has their sort of point at which they just don't feel like uh, something isn't right, and it's somewhere between treatment one or two or treatment two or three. You know, some clinicians uh, don't have easy access to psychiatry. It makes it more complicated. But if you're lucky to live in an area where psychiatric consultation is available, 
I think it makes sense to pursue that consultation when that patient that you're treating doesn't seem to be evolving the way the majority of your patients have or something seems a bit off or something is just not coming together the way that you had seen it in, in many other patients. And I think that would be the sort of broadest expression of, of when you might seek a psychiatric consultation. Makes sense. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today, Steve. My pleasure. We've been discussing moving beyond SSRI treatment when dealing with depression. I'd like to thank our guest today, Dr. Stephen Allen. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and your comments, so please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library right from your computer. Thank you for listening. Listen all month as ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals, features a special series, Spotlight on Neurology and Psychiatry.